thank you for your questions. I'm going to take some time answering them now, and uh, then we will pray. This session, I'm dealing with the genuine signs of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. We're going to look at the gift of tongues, and we're going to look at the uh, infilling of the Holy Spirit and the steps that God gives us to, in His Word to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Should we address the Holy Spirit in our prayer and worship? Pray or worship the Holy Spirit. There are those Pentecostal churches that begin to sing, Spirit, we praise you, and they praise the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very fascinating when it discusses that very point, and I would rather go what the Bible says. Amen. It says, but the helper comes, John 15, 26, when the helper comes, I will send to you him to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He's the Spirit of truth, and he'll testify of me. So the genuine Holy Spirit's manifestation testifies of Jesus. So we do not praise or worship the Spirit. The Spirit is sent to lead, to allow, uh, to lead us to praise and worship Jesus. Amen. So what the Bible says is that when He, the Spirit, is come, He will testify of me. So the best evidence of the, of the appreciation of the work of the Holy Spirit is praising Jesus. Um, next one. I've learned that the promised Spirit is working in me, though I didn't realize it. I do have a strong desire to witness, and I thank God for the seminar. A, a comment on that. Thank you. There will be times, see, before we ever know it, the Holy Spirit's working on us. Think of before you ever were converted to Christ. The Holy Spirit was convicting you of sin. The Holy Spirit was leading you to Jesus. So there's a difference between the Holy Spirit working on you and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit works on unconverted people, correct? But the Holy Spirit does not dwell in His fullness in unconverted people. So the Holy Spirit works on us to convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit works in us to lead us to truth. The Holy Spirit then fills us as we acknowledge the truth that God has revealed to us. The deeper our commitment to Jesus and our willingness to follow His truth, the more the Holy Spirit empowers us to do His work. Okay? I have a hard time knowing when it's God speaking and when it's Satan. How do I know the difference? Sometimes I also think it's just my own thinking. Very good perceptive question. You have three elements here. How do I know if it's my own will? How do I know if it's Satan leading me to do something? Or how do I know if it's God's will? There are, first, in Psalm 32, verse 8, God says, I'll guide you, I'll guide you with mine eye. Psalm 58, 11, God says, I'll guide you continually. God wants to guide us. How do you tell? There are really four ways to tell. First, what's the difference between a conviction that God wants you to do something and an impulse? Impulse is usually flighty. The more important the decision you have to make, the more time you ought to make, take to make the decision. I don't have to take much time when I go through the line to know whether I'm going to eat lentils or pasta. 
I just look at them and I know. I'm not going to go any further than that. I don't need to pray over that decision, you know. Okay, so some decisions you can make quickly. But the, mo the more important the decision is, the more time taken making it. If you're thinking about getting married, for example, that's a lifelong decision, and you feel very uh, impulsive about making that decision, this girl, this guy is the one of your dreams, and you just met them three hours ago at GYC. You know? <laughs> An impulse is usually flighty. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The thing you wanted so badly today, you don't want three weeks from now. The job that you thought was so important that it would be your lifelong dream and you don't get it in three weeks from now, you don't even care about it, see. Impulse is, is flighty, it's here today, gone tomorrow. A, a, a conviction is a growing constant awareness that God wants me to do something and I'll be outside of his will if I don't do it. So a conviction, so the first thing I look for in the decision getting, making pro progress is, I say, process. I say, God, you have promised to guide me, and I claim your promise of Psalm 32, verse 8. Suppose I'm thinking about going to a school. Suppose I'm thinking about selling a house and buying a new house. Suppose I'm thinking about whatever that decision is. I first say, God, you promised to guide me, Psalm 32, verse 8. And I claim the promise that just as really as you guided your children in the past, that you will guide me. And Lord, I am looking for that still small voice of your spirit over a period of time. This is a big decision. I'm not going to make it today or tomorrow, but I want to watch what your convictions are in my heart. So first, what is a conviction? It's a growing constant awareness that God wants me to do something. And I can sort out my thoughts from God's thoughts from, by by listening to God's voice over a period of time. Secondly, so you look for conviction. It's just like a chair. This chair has four legs, and I call them the four legs of guidance, the four legs of guidance when you're making a decision. I would not want to get up and stand on this chair at all like this if I thought one leg was broken, would you? Now, if two legs were broken, it'd be worse. If three legs were broken, it'd be even worse. And if four legs would be broken, we'd be in big time trouble. Here are the four legs of guidance. First, ask God for wisdom. Ask him to bring you conviction. That's James 1, verse 5. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. So first you ask God for wisdom. Second, you determine in your heart that you will do nothing that is in any way contrary to God's will that all you want in your life is his will. Thirdly, you seek counsel from people you trust. The bigger the decision, the more you try to look at two or three good counselors. Now, in seeking counsel, a couple things. Don't go to your closest friends because they're going to just tell you what you want to hear. See, when you go for counsel, people come to me sometime for counsel, and I ask them, do you want me to really tell you what I, think, where I, what I think, or do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? Most people don't want counsel. They want you just to confirm what they want to do anyway. 
So open your heart if you want counsel and say, look, I'm going to go to a few people that I really trust. They're not the kind of people that are going to tell me just what I want to hear, but they're people who have a heart for God and they can give me some wise counsel. So first you pray about it. Second, you determine in your heart that you're not going to, and, and, and you ask God for wisdom. You look for the convictions that God is giving you. You try to have this sense in your life that all you want is God's will. Thirdly, you go to some very wise people for counsel. And fourthly, you look for the providences. You can't walk through any door that's not open. So you look for the providences of God. What is God doing? You know, what, and I could give you a Bible study on all these things. It would take us an hour or two. I have a study that I give to young people, particularly on guidance. But those are the four principles. Seek it, praying about it, seeking God's will, determining not to do anything that's contrary to the Word of God, and uh, thirdly, you know, I, I've had people come to me and say, oh, boy, I've met this guy, and he is just tremendous. He's everything I want. Now, he's not a Christian, but he's really everything I want. You know, his personality, he's treated me so much better than any of those Christian guys I've ever dated, you know. And I just simply ask them, is this in harmony with the Word of God? You know, you have to make a decision that I'm not going to do anything that's not in harmony with the Word of God. Because God will not forsake you if you if you walk out and make decisions that are not in harmony with his word. I mean, God's not going to forsake you, but there are times that we live for the rest of our lives with consequences of decisions that we've made that are very, very difficult. So it's not that God just casts you off and he forsakes you, but there's a lot of pain that we bring upon ourselves that we don't have to bring. So if you're having a hard time knowing when it's God is speaking, seek him in prayer, determine you're not going to do anything that's in harm, not in harmony with his will, get counsel from wise, godly counselors, and look for the providences. Look for God opening doors in your life. How about the stories of people being raised from the dead? Is it true or not? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Um, there are some stories that I've heard, that I've checked out, that have seemed fairly credible. There are others that are way out there. So I don't believe everything I hear, but on the other hand, I don't reject it out of hand. So um, can God raise some people from the dead today? Sure he can. But here's the point. Do you remember what Jesus said in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? You remember that story? You come to the end of the story, and Lazarus says, or, or the, the, the rich man says, he says, look, let's, let's look at it because you're going to be interested in this. This is an important spiritual point, and I want to use this as a teaching moment. Take your Bible and go to the uh, book of Luke. And we're going to turn to Luke, the 15th chapter. The 16th chapter, Luke 16. We're not going to study verse by verse the parable of the rich man of Lazarus. It's a tremendous parable with many lessons. But look at here in, we're going to go back to verse 24 and onward. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Here's the rich man, and he's suffering. And then it goes down and it says, verse 29, Abraham said to him, well, let's go back even further than that. Verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one rose from the dead. 
what's Jesus' whole point in that parable? There are many lessons in the parable, but one point that Jesus is making is this. The rich man says, send somebody back from the dead and we'll believe. That's the spectacular evidence that we need. And the scripture says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they reject Moses and the prophets, they're even going to reject one that rose from the dead. Did, was there ever a real Lazarus? Did the real Lazarus ever rise from the dead? Did all the Pharisees accept him because he rose from the dead? What did they want to do? They want to kill him. Here's the point. All of the spectacular miracles in the world will not substitute for the living Word of God. That's the point that Jesus is making in the parable of the rich man Lazarus. That's why he tells it. Jesus uses a story to illustrate a point. So you ask about if somebody rose from the dead. I don't know whether they did or not, but to me that's not important. The most important thing is to be faithful to God's Word. And so will God work spectacular miracles? Yes. But miracles never should be a substitute for the Word of God. Neither should miracles ever be something that we, we, once we begin to long for the spectacular, you put yourself in a very vulnerable position. If I need spectacular stories, if I need spectacular miracles, my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. On the solid rock of His Word I stand. What's the relationship between faith and the role of the Holy Spirit in the conviction of the unique SDA doctrines? Is there sufficient intellectual evidence to grasp these truths? If it is, the Holy Spirit that leads all truth, will, will all truth-seeking spirit-led individuals, yes, uh, who are diligent Bible students, be led to accept SDA doctrine? Couple questions, a couple responses. There is adequate information in the Bible to clearly reveal each biblical truth, whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's the state of the dead, whether it is healthful living. But if you, you know enough about it to know that even the acceptance of the state of the dead or the Sabbath or the healthful living, there are texts in the Bible that you can interpret differently, aren't there? <laughs> For example, we just talked about the state of the dead, and I read The Rich Man and Lazarus. Do you ever wonder why God put that in the Bible? Yes. Do you ever wonder why God put Colossians 2 in the Bible, let nobody judge you regarding the Sabbath? Did you ever wonder why God put Acts chapter 10 in the Bible about the uh, sheet and all the... Now, are there explanations for those texts? Yes. But would it be easier if they weren't in the Bible? Yes. You, are you with me? Yes. You can explain them. But it'd be easier if they weren't there, right? Do you think if you were writing the Bible, you could have done a better job than God in nailing the Sabbath down so there'd be no doubts? Right? Some of you are saying, I could do that, man. I'd just nail those people. I mean, I know that. I'd just nail them. I mean, I'd make the state of the dead so plain. I wouldn't put that text in the Bible absent from the body present with the Lord. I mean, Paul, why'd you write that one? Here's the point. There is sufficient evidence in God's Word, but there are always hooks to hang your doubts on. There are always hooks to hang your doubts on. There's sufficient evidence, but the evidence is never ironclad. It always requires faith. And God has that on purpose in the Bible, because if you could only approach the Bible intellectually, then you could approach it like any other scientific discipline. But we need the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of the things of God's Word. 
So the first part of your question is, what's the relationship between faith and the role of the Holy Spirit in the conviction of SDA unique doctrines? Yes, the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to us. The Holy Spirit impresses us it is true, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see it. Is there sufficient intellectual evidence to grasp these truths? There is, but there's always that door of doubt if you want it. If it is the Holy Spirit that leads to all truth, will all truth-seeking, spirit-led individuals who are diligent Bible students be led to accept the SDA doctrine? Before the end, yes. Not now. In other words, God is leading them now, and they may be on the process of that journey, but never may come to the end of that journey before their death. You see, there are many people now that are lovely Baptist or Catholic Christians that die, that are honest-hearted, but they've never had a fullest explanation of God's truth. Are you with me? So that because they haven't fully accepted God's truth doesn't mean that they won't be saved. But the issue is, before the end of time, he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And one of the reasons the Lord is going to allow the great crisis to come is to bring to the whole world the attention of truth. So before Jesus comes, they will certainly... Um, they will certainly uh, have that opportunity. What, if anything, do you require from the sick before anointing them? I don't require anything from them, i.e., what requirements are there before the anointing? If the person requests the anointing, that's the only thing that's required. I would not superimpose anointing on them, but I would explain anointing, but the request must come from them. That was the only biblical requirement. It's in the context of that anointing that we talk to them about repentance, but we don't say you've got to repent before you're anointed. We simply share with them, uh, and when they're in that condition, they certainly uh, open their hearts to God. But the only thing that would be required is their request to participate in the anointing service in a private spiritual service. What if they cannot request it? What if they cannot because of the sick condition? Right. Sin, there may be somebody that requests on their behalf. Maybe a husband, a wife, yes, some family member. Sure, that has happened on a number of times. I would hope, though, that the family would be sensitive enough to request it before that because the whole purpose of the spiritual anointing is a spiritual... Uh, a spiritual relationship. Now, there are times in a car accident, for example, there are times of certain kinds of sickness that we certainly anoint, and, and if a family or others request it, we do it. But we want to make it a very spiritual service, and so I really try to, um, really try to create an atmosphere where hearts are open for the moving of the Spirit. Okay? If someone has the ability to foresee the future, how can we determine if that gift is coming from God? Um, a couple things on that. The Bible does give you a variety of um, a variety of tests of spiritual gifts, and I'm going to just leave this one for a little while because when I talk about spiritual gifts, I'm going to give it that to you. The idea of foretelling the future. God's word clearly points out that the gift of prophecy is one that he gives to his church to prepare it for the second coming of Christ. The gift of prophecy is not predicting which movie star is going to marry who, or which sports figure is going to, be, to have a fall, or which president is going to be elected. The gift of prophecy is a gift, the Bible says that he gives the gift to his church. So let's assume that what you're talking about is somebody within the Adventist church today that claims that they can foresee the future. The question you need to ask is, what's the purpose of this? What's the function of it? What is the purpose of it? What 
does a knowledge of the future help us have? Does this person have the fruits of the Spirit in their life? Love, kindness, gentleness. Are they calling to, for an obedient lifestyle? What I'm nervous for of so-called prophets within the Adventist church today, and I'm very nervous about it because I believe God has given us the gift of prophecy. And that gift of prophecy has provided sufficient information. It's not that we need more revelations of the future. It's, need, it's that we need to go back to the Bible and the gift of prophecy that God has given us. I don't close my mind. If God wants to give us a future prophet, I accept that. But I'm very sensitive toward it. And the Bible says, try the spirits. And so it's best to step back and let it happen. Um, it is our right to deny a person baptism into the Adventist church if they don't agree with the church statements on the baptismal certificate. Does it violate the Great Commission? It's strange to me that a person would want to be baptized into a church that they don't believe is teaching truth. Why would I want to be baptized into a church that in my mind is that I, that I can't agree with? So. I look at it from this perspective. I would work with that person and try to find out what specific they don't understand, why they don't understand it, and try to give Bible studies to them because I think it's unfair to them to baptize them into the Adventist church if they don't believe its teachings. Uh, how do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit now? Do we need to gather as the apostles did to fast and pray together? Certainly prayer, certainly open our hearts in repentance, certainly studying God's word. But the reception of that baptism is also something we claim by faith. See, how do you know if you're baptized by the Holy Spirit or not? It's not something you get on your knees and you just keep praying and say, Oh God, please give it to me. Please, please give it to me. No, you claim, Lord, you promised that you would baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I open my heart to you. I ask you to reveal to me any hidden sin. I, I want my heart to be cleansed. I need your power. And Lord, I want to be a witness for you. Based on your promise, I claim that you're giving me your spirit now. I claim that baptism of the Spirit by faith, immersion in your spirit. And Lord, I want to open my heart to get more and more of your spirit. It's not something you have to keep begging for God, because how do you know if you have it or not? Is it just kind of some um, manifestation? No. When you see God changing your life, and you go out to have the fruits of the Spirit in your life, and you go out and witness for Jesus, um, you certainly are able to be touched by His grace, and you are certainly sensing that when you're witnessing for Him, that you are filled by His Spirit. Here's somebody who says, years ago I sinned against someone, um, but I repented deeply, and should I go to confess them to them, and what about the other implications for family members and so forth? There are some things in life that have happened in the past that best remain in the past. And I would say to this person, if you have repented before God, accept his forgiveness and move on in your life and leave it alone. Now, there are times that that's not wise, but there are other times that it is. When God casts our sins into the depths of the sea, he says, no fishing. Don't go dig, don't go dig them up again. There are some times that require restitution and that require going to the person and saying, I've wronged you. There are times that that has happened. But if five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, if a long period of time has gone by, the person doesn't even know it. And I lived another life at another time, 
and I've moved on with my life, I have a family now, to go back and, and pull that up again just creates fractures and hurts. I would say rejoice in the forgiveness that Jesus gives you, rejoice in Jesus' grace, and move on with your life. There are times that the Holy Spirit convicts us with something specific, and maybe I should mention the way, at least in my own life, I understand the difference between see, <coughs> guilt. Guilt can either be specific or nonspecific. The devil always brings nonspecific guilt. The devil always makes you feel unclean. God, if he's going to convict you of something, usually convicts you of a specific thing. Here's the way you know whether the guilt that you have about something is from God or from the devil, because God can use guilt to bring you to confession and forgiveness. If it is non-specific guilt, if it's just a feeling of guiltiness, that's always the devil. Um, if God's going to convict you by His Holy Spirit, He convicts you of something specific. Secondly, if you've already repented of it and confessed it, and it keeps coming up in your mind, usually it's the devil bringing it up. Because you've already dealt with it. You've already confessed it. You've already forgiven it. The purpose of restitution is witnessing to the person that you wronged to help to lead them closer to Jesus. It's not to make you feel good, but the purpose of restitution. If I hurt somebody and God brings that to my mind, the reason I go to them is because I want to be a positive witness to them. But if they don't even think I hurt them, and if that's nothing to them, and if there's no way that I can be a blessing to them, and if in going to them it hurts current relationships that I have, it's better to, to rejoice in God's grace. So there's a lot in our past lives that it's far better to leave and not bring it up, or else we'll feel continually guilty. But accept God's grace, accept His goodness, accept His power. Okay, that's enough for right now. We're going to pray. And my timekeeper, my timekeeper, she's gone. Okay, you're going to be a substitute timekeeper. I'm going to see if these guys do as good as my girl sat in the front row here. Okay, what time I got right now? 425. Oh, it can't be 425. It can't be 425. All right, we got to go to, we're going to do the gift of tongues quick. We got to pray. We really need to pray on this one. All right, Father in heaven, we're going to pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your grace, your goodness, your power. Thank you that you want to work in our hearts through the manifestation of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What about the gift of tongues? You have a Pentecostal friend. Yes. 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 And they say to you, we would really, we've seen the advent, you have some truth, but you guys don't have the Holy Spirit. And we wish that you could come into our, I mean, we could never become an Adventist because there's no spirit in your church. I say to them, Mr. Pentecostal, Miss Pentecostal, if you really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Adventist church is the place to go. If you think you have the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal church, you should see the Adventist church. The Adventist church is filled with the Spirit. You want to know how to be filled with the Spirit? Well, what's the evidence of the infilling of the Spirit? Well, let's look at a few things here. You never take away something before you give something. If I am driving an old, beat-up 1961... No, that's, that's, that's not a good illustration. It's before you're ever born. Uh, LAUGHTER 
If I am driving an old beat up 1991 Volkswagen that is limping on its last leg and you try to take it, but I have no other transportation from here back to Virginia, we may have a long heated discussion before you get it. But if you drive up next to me with a Lexus and say, hey Mark, you wanna trade? And you just drove up next to me with your 2000 and nine Lexus that your father gave you for Christmas. <laughs> I'll give you my Volkswagen any day. <laughs> if you try to tell the Pentecostals, look, give up your gift of tongues and come into the Adventist church and be as dead as the rest of us, <laughs> you're not gonna have much success. But if you say to them, if you really wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit, if you really want to be filled with God's Spirit, the Adventist Church is the place to be. And I want to share with you what the infilling of the Holy Spirit is all about. We're going to first go. Let's go to three texts. Let's start with John. John 6, verse 63. How are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And John 6, verse 63. John 6, verse 63. Jesus says to them, John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So according to Jesus himself, his words are what? Life and what else? Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible, same Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible, fills our hearts as we read the Bible. Are you with me? The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So what happened? This is, you know, 666 is one of the most important things in the Bible. But I think the 666 in John is as important as the 666 in Revelation. You ever read the 666 in John? John 6, verse 66. Here it is. John 6, verse 66. My timekeeper's back. I feel comfortable now. John 6, verse 66. Okay, I, come on now. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So what happened? Jesus revealed that the indwelling of the Spirit was understanding his word and living by it. That you're filled with the Spirit when you're filled with the Word of God. So the infilling of the Spirit is the infilling of the what, everybody? Word. But when they heard that, they walked back. So how can I be filled with the Spirit? John 14, verse 15 and 16. John 14, verse 15 and 16. If you love me, do what? You've read that, but then you neglect the other verse. Are you Adventist? You read that one, but what is, is that where the sentence ends? If you love me, keep my commandments, and what? I'll pray the Father. And what will he do? Give you another comfort, helper that he may abide with you, what? Forever. So if you love Jesus and his word fills your heart, you want to keep his commandments. And if you do that, he's going to give you a comfort of the Holy Spirit that's going to abide with you forever. So Mr. Pentecostal, you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Follow the word of Christ. Love him and keep his commandments. And his Holy Spirit will enter into your life and fill you in ways you never dreamed of before. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. The infilling of the Holy Spirit comes to the converted heart that is filled with the Word of God and desires to be empowered to witness. 
Acts chapter, Acts chapter 5, and we're look, looking there at verse 31 and 32. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, that's Jesus, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses, Acts 5, verse 32, to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given. Who gives the Holy Spirit? God. Who does he give it to? To those who do what? Obey him. Mr. Pentecostal, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to keep the Bible Sabbath. Because the Holy Spirit is given to those that do what? Obey the word of God. So if I am a Bible-believing Christian with my heart committed to God, desiring to obey God, and His Word resides in my heart, I am filled with what? The Holy Spirit. So what's the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit? A heart converted to God, a mind dedicated to God, a mind filled with God's Word, and the desire to serve Him now and forever. That's evidence. You are Spirit-filled Christians. When we accept God's Word, Spirit-filled Christians is not whoosh, you know, fire in my soul and, and you know, and, a, and a eyes twinkling and, you know, and, and an electrode's coming up my brain, my back, and uh, my ears tingling. Not at all. Spirit-filled Christians love God, serve God, witness for God. Now, what is the genuine gift of tongues? The gift of tongues is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. We'll look at every one. Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. The gift of tongues is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. What is the genuine gift of tongues? The genuine gift of tongues in the Bible is the gift of real languages, the ability to speak in real languages that I otherwise have not learned for the purpose of communicating the gospel. The genuine gift of tongues in the Bible is the gift of real languages which I understand that God enables me to understand for the purpose of pro proclaiming the gospel. There are two purposes for the gift of tongues in the book of Acts. Two. Purpose number one, to communicate the gospel. Purpose number two, to authenticate truth when the gospel has been proclaimed in a multi-language society. So in the book of Acts, the gift of tongues does two things. One, it is a vehicle to communicate the gospel. Two, it authenticates truth by when the gospel has been proclaimed because the miraculous gift has been given. What do we see in 1 Corinthians 14? We're going to look at every instance of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts, then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 14, and we are going to move. Um, in the book of Acts, in, in book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, you have the abuse of the genuine gift of tongues. It's the abuse of the genuine gift, and I'll show that to you. First, we're going to Acts 2. Acts 2 is the clearest mention in the Bible of the gift of tongues. And there's something in the Bible that we call the law of first mention. The law of first mention is something is mentioned first in the Bible and it explains it and everything else is based on that first mention. The basic outline of prophecy is given in Daniel 2. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Daniel 11 are all based on Daniel 2, the law of first mention. Clearest 
outline of the kingdoms in Daniel 2, and the others grow out of that. The Sabbath, first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis. Everything else grows out of the creation story in Genesis, the law first mentioned. Here, the law first mentioned. Tongues, what were they? Verse 2 and onward. Acts 2, verse 1 and onward. Now when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared on them, verse 3, tongues of fire. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other, King James says tongues, the word is glossolalia, other languages. You remember in Revelation 14, verse 6, it says, uh, in verse 6, it says, they went out to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation, what? Tongue and what? Kindred and people. Tongue is language. So it's the exact same word for languages. They went to speak with other languages. Then the Bible describes what those other languages were and why. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So they were from every what? Nation. Where were they from? Well, verse 6 says, when the sound occurred, the multitude came together. They heard people speak in their own language. They were all amazed, saying, these people are Galileans. But we hear them speak in our own language. And it talks about what the languages were. Parthenian, Median, Elamite, verse 9. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pergia, Pampilia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own, verse 11, languages, the wonderful words of God. So the Bible actually names the different languages. Why would God, here are some questions you have to answer about Acts 2. Why would God have them speak in individual languages and have the disciples know those languages if the people had already come up to Jerusalem to worship and if they would understand Peter's speech later? Are you with me? Because Peter spoke later to them. Here's why. How many of you speak more than one language? Can I see your hands? Okay. Isn't it quite amazing when, although, how many, how many of for you English is a second language? You may not know it quite well. It's a second language. Or you may know it well. Okay. Isn't there something special, though, that happens to you when you hear somebody speaking in your mother tongue? Isn't there something special about that? These people did speak Hebrew. They came to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover. But that was not their mother tongue. It was a second language for them. When they heard the disciples speaking in their mother tongue, in a language that these disciples had never learned, but the Holy Spirit had given them, they were attracted to the gospel, they saw the authenticity of the gospel, and their hearts were transformed. So, in Acts chapter 2, the gift of real languages was given to the disciples for two reasons. To break the language barrier, to make communication far easier with many of these people, who for Hebrew was a second language, and for whom they couldn't fully understand. Secondly, it authenticated the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, the gift of tongues is a real language to communicate the gospel. Now, you don't see the gift of tongues again in Acts until Acts 10. And in Acts chapter 10, you have the story of Cornelius. 
Cornelius is a man who is in Caesarea in Acts 10 verse 1. He is from Italy and he is praying, he's a Gentile, that God would reveal to him light and truth. Peter is up on the roof praying and Peter is a Jew and there's a great barrier between Jews and Gentiles. As Peter prays, a sheet comes down and it has alligators and crocodiles and rats and mice and it has uh, snakes in it. And God says, Peter, you see that rat over there? Go eat it. And Peter says, nothing doing, Lord. I never ate rats before and I'm not going to start now. <laughs> and and it, there's a pig in that sheet and God says, go eat the pig. And Peter says, I never ate that before. I'm not going to do it now. And Peter sees something else in there, a lizard. Go eat it. Go eat a snake. No, Lord, I'm not going to do that. Three times that happens. Now, there are some people that say this is a vision that's telling Peter to eat anything he wants. Well, Peter didn't come to that conclusion. Is this vision that I should have snake sandwiches for lunch and fried rat for supper and baked pig for breakfast? Is that what you are suggesting, my friend? For the people who tell me they can eat any, that we should eat anything, and this vision does it, I say to them, would you like me to give you the mice that I caught in the mice trap in the garage for lunch tomorrow if we can eat anything? What are you saying to me, my man? You see, um, so here, they, some people say, oh, this is what God meant. But if you look at Acts 10, verse 17, it says, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, when he had seen, meant. Did Peter understand the vision after the sheep came down three times? Did he? No, he didn't understand it. Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry. They come knocking on the door. So right at the time he's wondering, the Gentiles, whom he's calling pigs and rats and snakes, come knocking on the door. And all of a sudden the light goes on in Peter's mind. Wait a minute, God was just explaining to me that I was calling these other people snakes and pigs and rats and that I have racial prejudice in my head. That this vision is the clearest teaching in the Bible on racial harmony. This is the text in Acts 10. It says, God said, have no respect, I have no respect to persons. That with me, all of my creation is one creation. Whatever the color of the skin is, or, or, or the, the shape of the eyes, or the color of the hair, or the no hair. Whatever all of that. God said, look, I've made of one blood all nations. You're a common creation. Break down these walls of racial prejudice. See, that's what this is all about. So Peter has his prejudice in his head. Now, the interesting thing about this is Peter goes, he shares the gospel with um, Cornelius. Cornelius accepts Christ. And he accepts the gospel. But look what happens. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Are you with me? Acts 10 verse 44. And those of the circumcision, many of who believed, were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now, when was the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on the, on the Jews at Pentecost, right? And when it was poured out there, there was real languages that Peter and the Jews' disciples preached to the Gentiles. I, I mean, preached to the other Jews that were there. So there was real languages. Peter knew that God gave to him real languages. But now, Cornelius 
speaks back to Peter in a real language that Peter can understand. And Peter says, wait a minute. If God graced me with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and gave me a real language, and now he gives it to Cornelius, that authenticates that Cornelius has genuinely accepted Christ, and he too has been filled by the Holy Spirit. So God used tongues in a multi-language situation again between Peter, a Jew, and Cornelius, an Italian Gentile, to confirm the gospel. Now this becomes more interesting. Peter goes back to explain what he did to the disciples. And the disciples are kind of mystified. Why did you go to some Gentile? So what does Peter do? Peter describes it and then he says in verse 17, don't miss this one. If therefore God gave them, Peter is saying, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that that I should withstand God? Peter says that Cornelius received what kind of gift? What kind of gift was it? The same gift. Every time in Acts, the gift of tongues are mentioned. There are two different language groups present at least. In this instance, God gives Cornelius a real language that is not his mother tongue that Peter fully understands to confirm to Peter that he has the same gift that Peter got on Pentecost, therefore the Gentiles could be accepted in the gospel. Are you with me so far? Okay, now we go to Acts 19. Acts 19. In Acts 19, you have two language groups. In Acts 19, Paul comes to the upper coast of Corinth. He finds a group that were baptized by John, but had never received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He leads them to Christ. They open their hearts, verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. They received the same gift of real languages in Acts 2 and Acts 10 to confirm to the disciples present that the gift of the Holy Spirit was not a gift exclusively for the Jews, but it was for Gentile converts as well. So in, when you look at the book of Acts, there are two purposes for the gift of tongues. In, in each instance in Acts, tongues are a what kind of language? Real language. They're not some prayer language, and we're going to go into that. Tongues are a real language. What are they, why are they given in Acts? Number one, to communicate the gospel. They break the language barrier. Now, incidentally, according to Acts of the Apostles Ellen White, when the, when the disciples received the gift of real languages or tongues, they could speak purely and accurately in those languages for the rest of their lives. It was not a gift given on Pentecost alone. But it was a real gift of real languages that they could use to communicate the gospel. Read about that in about the third chapter, the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts of the Apostles. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. This was a gift to communicate the gospel. So it was given to communicate the gospel or to authenticate the truth with Gentile believers who didn't speak the mother tongue of the disciples after the gospel was already proclaimed. That's Acts 2, 10, 19. So the book of Acts is clear. Tongues is a real language. Does God do that today? Sometimes he does. 
Sometimes our missionaries have been far into the jungles of the Amazon, far into the jungles of, uh, of, of Africa or into South America, and they've come across tribes that they couldn't communicate with, and they've opened the Bible, and God has given them the gift of real languages to communicate the gospel. Now, we come to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is Paul's problem church. In 1 Corinthians, I'll take you for the first, I'll take you through the first 12 chapters in the next 12 seconds. 1 Corinthians 1, they're arguing, they got strife. 1 Corinthians 2, they're not spiritual, they're carnal. 1 Corinthians 3, some says, I'm Paul, I'm Cephas, I'm Apollos. There's divisions. They have arrogance and pride. 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, immorality is so big in the church, one young man has immoral sexual relationships with his mother, the church does nothing about it. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, they're suing people at the law. 1 Corinthians uh, 9 and 10, they're abusing the Lord's Supper. So, 1 Corinthians is a big, pro big problem church for Paul. He loves that church, but it has selfish exhibitionism. There's a strife for leadership. There's a conflict among one another. In that church, in a multicultural society, in that multicultural society, with this church of strife and fighting and bickering, there is selfish exhibitionism that's going on in the church, 1 Corinthians 14. If this were the false gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul would have condemned it. Because it was not the false gift of tongues, but an abuse of the genuine gift, Paul tries to control it. Now I'm going to look at verses 1 to 5 later. We're going to look at those at the end, but I'm going to look at verse 6 and onward and give you an explanation of them. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6 and onward. Now, I think our time is up, but can I take 10 minutes to finish this up? Okay. 1 Corinthians 14, 6 and onward. Paul says, Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 14 for intelligent communication. Before I give you biblical reasoning, let me give you a little just uh, pure reasoning. If the gift of tongues is a prayer language, which the prayer does not understand, my question to you is this. Why would God give you a language to pray to him which you don't understand? If the essence of being human and created in the image of God, if the essence of being human and being created in the image of God, if the thing that lifts me above the animal creation is my mind, should I be not suspect anything that bypasses the mind? Are you with me in the reasoning? See, why is, how could God possibly be honored by my offering prayers that I don't even understand what I'm saying in my prayer? If indeed the essence of the image of God is conscience, reason, and judgment. God is honored when I come to him with all the intelligence of my mind. Somebody says, oh, we need the Holy Spirit to, we need that, that, that tongues are a prayer language. Well, wait a minute. The Bible tells me that the Holy Spirit interprets my human language with groanings that cannot be uttered as he intercedes before me in the throne of God. That's Romans 8, right? The Bible says, and we better get that one. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 14. Go back to Romans 8. So the Bible teaches that God, 
that God himself, through the Holy Spirit, interprets the longings of my heart and presents them before the throne of God with, do I believe in tongues? Sure. I believe the Holy Spirit takes my tongue as I speak intelligent language and translates that into the language of heaven and presents it before God. So the genuine gift of tongues is when the Holy Spirit takes your language and translates it into the language of heaven and presents it before God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. I'm too weak. I, don't, I try to present before God through the intelligence of my mind, but I don't understand God's ways fully. And it says, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So we come before God and we pray to God. And the Holy Spirit takes that language and he translates it into the language of heaven. But I'm praying intelligently, understanding it with my mind. That's what Paul is arguing for. Now when you see some things in 1 Corinthians 14, it's quite amazing. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues... What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? So Paul says, what profit does, language, does a tongue or language have unless you understand it? Verse 7, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into what? The air. There are, it may be, so many different kind of what? Languages in the world. So what is he talking about, everybody? Languages. None of them without significance. Verse 11, therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks to me a foreigner. What was happening in the church at Corinth? People would stand up, they would speak a real language that nobody else in church knew to demonstrate how spiritual they were, and they would illustrate in that church of strife and bickering how great they were because they had the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were abusing the genuine gift. God gave them the gift to communicate the gospel. If nobody understood it in the church, they weren't jumping up speaking some gibberish. They were jumping up and Paul says, wait a minute, nobody understands this. So don't you speak it unless you have a interpreter. It's a real language, as we'll see. Now, we come to a hard text that I will explain as we go. Verse 12. Even so you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. In other words, spiritual gifts are not given as an end to themselves. Let these spiritual gifts edify and build up the church. There's selfish exhibitionism going on in Corinth. You are showing how so-called great you are as you spout off on this language that you understand but nobody else does. He says, look, Spiritual gifts are always given for the upbuilding of the church, and you're not building up the church at all with this. Then he comes to verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a language or tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a language... Now, here's where it gets confusing to some. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Oh, somebody says, I'm praying in the spirit, and I don't understand it. 
When it says, my understanding, that's your key. What does Paul mean when he says, my understanding? Who speaks Spanish here? Who speaks Spanish, okay? Give me the words, my understanding in Spanish. Okay. Now, you can say, my understanding. You can also say the understanding of me, can't you? You can say, my understanding or the understanding of me. The better translation of this passage is not my understanding, but the understanding of me. And there's a big difference. So the question becomes, in the Greek language of the New Testament, it is the understanding of me. We have what we call the genitive case that is possessive, the understanding of me. So the question is, who is, the, who is he referring to when he says the understanding of me? Is it he doesn't understand, or is it the people around him don't understand? That's the real issue. You settle it in the next two verses. Verse 15, what is the result then? I'll pray with the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit working in my life. I'll also pray with the understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit, and I'll sing with the understanding. Now notice, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since, verse 16, last part, who is it that doesn't understand? He does not understand what you say. So the understanding of me by others is what he's concerned about. Paul in court at the Corinthian church, people in worship would stand up. They would speak a real language. Nobody understood that language. They understood it. They were selfishly exhibiting their pride to others. Paul said, this is not edifying the church. It's the understanding of me by others that he's talking about. Verse 17, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Why is the other not edified? Because he doesn't understand at all. I thank my God that I speak with languages more than you all, with tongues. Did Paul speak with tongues? Certainly. Because he was an international apostle. The gift at Acts 2 uh, continued with Peter. Paul also was given that gift, and he went out and preached the gospel, and they understood it. Okay? Yet in church, I'd rather speak five words with understanding that I may teach others than 10,000 in a what? Language. Paul has just argued from verse 6 to 19 for intelligent speech. Now, he says in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. As it's written, with, with men of other languages and other lips, I'll speak to this people. Verse 22 is one of your key verses. Therefore, tongues or languages are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. To my Pentecostal friends, I say this. Why would you use the gift of tongues in church for believers? Because the Bible says tongues are not for believers, but for their unbelievers. Why are for tongues for unbelievers? Because God gives you the, the gift of real languages to communicate the gospel to unbelievers, so the unbeliever needs to hear the gospel. Are you with me? So the whole idea that you need tongues in church, Paul said, that's false. Right away. You don't need it in church because you've got believers there. So tongues, languages are for a sign, not to those who believe. Therefore, 
He says, therefore, because of this, because tongues are for unbelievers, if the whole church comes together in one place, that's worship, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are uninformed or unbelievers, they're going to say, you're out of your mind. Paul says, you come into that church, and all those people are speaking in languages you don't understand, you're going to say what? They're out of their mind. So then Paul says, if you're going to speak in tongues, follow these four biblical principles. Number, principle number one, verse 22, tongues are for believers. I mean, tongues are for unbelievers. Tongues are for unbelievers, not believers. They're to communicate the gospel. Number two, verse 27. If anybody speaks in a language, let there be two or three at most. So if you're going to speak in a language in church, none of this business, everybody raising their hand speaking at one time, right? Let it be two or at most by what? Three. And then he says, two or three, each in turn, never more than one speaking at a time. Well, when you go into the Pentecostal churches, what happens? Everybody's speaking. Paul said, no, tongues are a real language. If you're going to speak, only one person at a time, never more than one. Secondly, in that, let be sure that there is a what? Interpreter. Why? Because the purpose of tongues is for intelligent communication. It's not a prayer language. So one Tongues are for unbelievers to communicate the gospel. If they're used in church, if somebody speaks in a different language to edify the church, let somebody interpret for that person so you understand. Two, don't have that happening too many times because if you do, it's going to confuse the church. So, last one. No women can speak in tongues in church. Verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches. The concept of women keeping silent in the churches is in the concept of the gift of tongues. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. That's a good one to end on, isn't it? What is the name of this letter? What is the name of the letter? Corinthians. What do you know about Corinth? Corinth had a, had a temple to Aphrodite. There were a thousand pagan prostitutes that went to that temple. Part of the worship services in Corinth were ecstatic utterances in the temple. Paul says, look, if you come walking into the Christian church and you have scores of people getting up and they're all babbling and you have your godly women getting up, you know what's going to happen? those unbelievers are going to think they're in a pagan's temple of prostitution. That's what he's talking about here. And he says, look, tongues are A, a gift of God. Do not abuse them. Secondly, they're a real language to communicate the gospel that God sometimes gives. Thirdly, if you speak in church, use it to build up the church, not to edify yourself. Fourthly, have only one person speak at a time. Fifthly, don't confuse the issue when right next door you got a, the thousand pagan immoral priestesses. It's nothing to do with women being silent in the church today. That's totally taking this out of context. The context is a unique situation in Corinth. God, I believe, before the time of the end is going to give the genuine gift of tongues again. Amen. 
the gift of real languages. And some of us and some of you young people are going to go as missionaries. And you know when I believe God gives you the gift of tongues? You go to Korea as a missionary, and within six months, the Holy Spirit enables you to learn Korean, and you can preach in, in it. When you go to the Middle East, and you begin to study the language, and the Holy Spirit gives you that gift miraculously, and you can just pick that language up, and you're able to communicate the gospel in it. The gift of tongues for preaching the gospel is going to be used powerfully, and God is going to help us in these last days to learn languages fast, rapidly. I think we're going to have young people that are learning Chinese. I think we're going to have young people learning Arabic. I think we're going to have young people, and God is going to just bless their mind and bless their mind, and the gift of real languages is going to come, and we're going to use that to preach the gospel. The false is ecstatic emotionalism that reigns you up. The true is the gift that God gives to proclaim his gospel. God bless you. Thanks for coming to class. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.